you're you're involved in stuff, you're doing things in different pockets, but you're really trying to go at 10,000 feet to look over what's Columbus need to look like in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years from now. Alex Frohmeyer, known by many as just Fro, is the co-founder and CEO of Beam Dental, a digital-first provider of dental insurance for businesses in over 40 states. Fro started Beam Dental with Alex Curry and Dan Dykes in 2012 due to a passion for solving problems in the fragmented and analog dental industry. With multiple dentists in both his immediate and extended family, Fro has guided Beam from an apartment in Louisville, Kentucky to over 200 employees and 5,000 clients with core values built around grit, growth, resilience, initiative, tenacity, and team first. Fro is a Forbes 30 under 30, an EY Entrepreneur of the Year finalist, and a trained engineer originally from Kentucky. All right. Well, we are here today with Alex Frohmeyer. I think most people know you as Fro. And, uh, you know, Alex, I'm excited to connect with you today. You're uh, one of the shining bright lights in the city and have uh, just a really kind of fun uh, and, and smiley, energetic way of being around town. And I'm, I've been able to connect with you in the past, but observe that really mostly more than anything. And so I'm excited to have you here and to dig in and to hear your journey. It's great to be on, man. I'm actually re-watching Entourage right now. Uh, introduced it to my fiance, who I didn't think would like it, by the way, but she does. Yeah. And uh, Vincent Chase, the movie star, says at one point, uh, my life is too good to be worried about shit like this. <laughs> and uh, that, that explains my personality. Is like life, life is good. And it's short, too. So it might as well be having as much fun as possible. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Yeah, Entourage is a fun show. My, it is. My son actually just went through and watched the whole thing. He's he's nineteen and in college, and I wondered if it would still translate. And it and it it holds up. It's still good today. Yes, yeah. though notably, you could never launch it as a new series today. The level of <laughs> sexism, in particular, in the show, would be just a non-starter. No, uh, but, no, it's it's it's. So that part it. didn't age well, but probably everything else did. Yeah. It's of a time period, that's for sure. So anyway, let's do, let's hop in. I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. Our format really has been to try to hear the full story. So tell me a little bit about kind of your early days, your family, your childhood, where you're from, you know, kind of um, set the stage for us. I'm from Kentucky. Uh, grew up in uh, Campbell County, which is one of the three counties that butt up against the Ohio River and Cincinnati. Um, so I'm from the very, very northern tip of Kentucky, which is shaped more or less like a triangle. Uh, and that uh, tippity top point of the triangle just comes right up to Cincinnati, Ohio. So I grew up in the greater Cincinnati area. And I grew up in actually kind of a unique, on unique geography, which is essentially that even though my dad was close enough to downtown Cincinnati that he commuted to downtown, which took about a half an hour every single day uh, for me, uh, for our family growing up, when you're at my house, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. We lived on top of a big hill. My driveway is almost a mile long, I think. And, and it's like straight up the side of this hill. And it's on about 100-ish acres of mostly woods. So it's very isolated. It feels like you're a hundred miles away from any city, and really you're only about 
15 miles outside of a pretty major city. And it was this really interesting juxtaposition, which I loved and hated growing up. So I was, uh, as a kid, really interested in being outside all the time, juxtaposed by loving reading. So I was either inside reading or outside playing in the woods pretty much every day. But at the time, even though I loved both of those activities, I absolutely hated where I lived because we had to get in the car and drive to any of my friends' houses. We were far enough away that it was always a car right away. And really was jealous of my friends growing up in a subdivision where they could all just get together, you know, two houses away, 10 houses away, whatever it was in subdivision, play baseball or football or whatever the thing was that day. And so I was uh, constantly jealous of my friends who lived in close proximity to one another when I was uh, so isolated in my view, but it cultivated a sense of curiosity uh, because I had to create my own uh, imaginary friends and then my own, you know, playtime storylines out in the woods. And, uh, and all the reading I did as a child, I think really just cultivated a lot of imagination and creativity that I carry through today. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I've actually heard this story um, similar from others that have kind of grown up, not so much the kind of like wanting to be with the friends, but the, the part about the imagination. Um, you know, it does seem like when kind of forced to be creative, you know, maybe we can tap into a side of us that um, otherwise doesn't come out. And, and I'm kind of curious from your standpoint, you know, hindsight's 2020. I don't know if you kind of um, are looking at it from that perspective or if you, um, you know, felt like this at the time, but did you think that you were just naturally creative? Or do you feel like that was really a product of your environment that was you know, brought out of you because of? Yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, I think I would have never described myself as creative, uh, mostly because I would have heavily associated that word with being artistic. And I would have right. associated art with visual art, which I would have associated with painting only. Yeah. <laughs> so very even common. Though I've been a musician, yep. Yeah. Yep. And so I've been a musician since I've been playing drums since I was 11 or 12 years old. And, and so that became a heavy uh, creative outlet for me. But again, as a kid, I wouldn't have even have called the drums creative. I would have thought of that as like, well, I'm not very good at drawing and I'm not very good at painting at all. So I must not be creative. And only later does it make a ton of sense that the curiosity, the imagination, the creativity is a muscle that gets flexed in so many different ways in life and in the professional world that you know now I consider myself actually that's a, a superpower is flexing back and forth between being analytical and an engineer by training and then thinking create, uh, creatively about problems and, and solutions. At the time, I wouldn't have given it a second thought. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering a little bit about kind of your family and you know how that influenced you at that time. I think it's like amazing right away. This is exactly why I enjoy having these conversations and what I you know, hope that the listeners will hear is you've already connected some pretty powerful dots, right? You had this thing where you were in these kind of two worlds, you had to bounce back and forth, you know, you had to use your imagination, you know, and, and so now how that gets applied to today. I mean, to me, my belief is that all of these little fragments of our life are there for us to learn and grow and use, which is exactly what you're doing now. Um, but I'm wondering again, like, 
how much of that was um, just kind of, you know, what happened? How much of that was maybe intentional or where your parents and, and kind of family values or upbringing, you know, influenced that part of your life? Yeah, I, I love it because now it all seems so obvious in retrospect, right? But you can, at multiple points in my childhood and growing up, there's always been these opposing forces, these tensions in uh, my interests or in my situation that now in retrospect looks so obvious as to inform my personality or the things I then got into professionally led me toward being, led me toward my co-founders, led me toward the key relationships in my life. Most of them were accidents, happy accidents, or purposeful coming from me, not necessarily the people around me, especially my, my parents. Because my parents, I grew up in a two-parent household. Uh, they've been married for 30, mid-30s of years already, but met in high school, started dating in college, kind of been together forever uh, type of storyline. Both come from big families, big Catholic families in, in the Cincinnati region. And so I grew up in a household that was heavily indexed toward uh, stability, predictability, and engagement. My mom was working back and forth between part-time at a hospital. She's an occupational therapist by training, so she'd do a couple days a week there, but mostly at home with my two sisters and I. And then my dad, um, engineer, mathematician, worked in IT um, for a variety of, of you know, Fortune 500 style businesses, so big, big, stable uh, companies. And so everything was built with the family first, the family in mind. So it was a really great, really loving household, but not in a very, not driven by here's the playbook and here's how we're going to execute. We're going to get you into this school. You're going to study this. You're going to care about that. Um, so not prescriptive at all. In fact, the exact opposite. My parents politically are probably very libertarian in nature. So mm-hmm. everything is like the, I, I'm here to guide, but the moment you turn 18 in particular, but even leading up to that, it's kind of like you make your own mistakes, you get your hands dirty or you don't, mm-hmm. and you kind of do whatever you want to do. You want to play football? Let's play football. You want to quit football? Quit football. Who cares? Um, but so it's up to you, but consequences are all on you. Mm. And and so I think I you know, now appreciate an environment that was kind of maximalist on, on freedom with some interesting caveats being around um, anything that was kind of like a no-no morally. So my parents weren't like, yes, you can drink because mm-hmm. freedom, right? It was, mm-hmm. it was still, you know, there, were, there were things that were off limits for sure. Um, but anything that I wanted to do, activities, after school things, hobbies, I wanted to play the drums, so I got a drum set, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, my parents weren't nudging me toward the piano. They weren't nudging me toward this sport, that sport, these things, those things. And I I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where the idea of me going to college was a foregone conclusion the day I was born. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I now appreciate a lot that I think is less true than I thought it was growing up. I thought everybody grew up assumed Mm -hmm. that college was an absolute um, uh, foregone conclusion. And it's not. But that, that freedom that I was lucky to grow up with allowed me to explore lots of different things. And so I ended up being a uh, big sports guy, but took pit stops in gymnastics, uh, taekwondo, dabbled with a couple other instruments before finding my, my home and, and drums. Uh, and that was really great. The flexibility to kind of meander my way through childhood, trying different things, um, shows up later in my interest in 
everything uh, when I was in engineering school and dropping into classes at the University of Louisville that I had nothing to do with my major, but I was just interested in learning more. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting thing to to highlight this approach your parents took. Um, It sounds really healthy to me. You know, in kind of the research I've done and and kind of, you know, the world of psychology and therapy and, you know, parental, you know, guidelines and, you know, there is a, there is a pretty strong through line that people tend to um, elevate, which is that letting your kids go on their own journey and being more of a guide and a support system is the kind of preferred method. That wasn't uh, as much, you know, my experience. I think even with my own kids, you know, you do have what you think is their best interest in mind. You think that you might know what's actually best for them. Um, I have kind of learned as a parent that I'm not as convinced of that as I once was. That in fact the world's changing, even things like college, you know, that was kind of the way I grew up too, that that was like a given. And 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 it's it's really a given for my kids too, except that I'm more open to it not necessarily being as important as I thought it was. Um, in any event, you know, we could talk about that, but I I am I'm I, I guess I'm uh impressed and, and I'm just curious, like if you felt that freedom in a way that really did shape you, you know, that they weren't pushing things on you, that they weren't, even sometimes it's subtle, even sometimes it's super loving, but you know, it's, it's the, the, the fact that you had that freedom and yet there were boundaries too. So, you know, too much freedom can be a problem. You, you, you know, you were a kid. So I just, you know, I don't know if you want to say anything more about kind of the felt experience of having that kind of parental environment. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it because you know there are, there are soft pressures that exist. Your kids probably go through this, which is the follow in the footsteps mm-hmm. situation, where you're you're a successful person and there's a uh, and you've built a community around you, and your kids probably feel some level of soft pressure to go into that world. Like, does LeBron James kids? Have you know? Does Bronny have a a choice in the matter to play basketball or not? There's a lot of pressure there to do what Dad does, right? And um, or or Mom or just a key influence in your life. And I I didn't really have that, Uh, so there was no soft pressure to you know follow Dad into engineering or follow Mom into healthcare field. Even though that kind of happened, I sit at at kind of the nexus of healthcare and and technology today. But there was there's never soft pressure there. Um, well, what's interesting is that I, w- I would say that my felt experience would have been about all the things I wasn't getting. Um, Mom, I want to go to my friend's house. Can I have a ride? Nope. I didn't have cable growing up is another good example of this. So, you know, all my friends had cable. I did, I, we just had, you know, the basic five channels or whatever. And so that imagination and curiosity and the cultivation of that was partially likely driven by the fact that I could only watch MTV or Nickelodeon or anything else I wanted to do. Uh, when I was at somebody else's house, I couldn't do it at at my own house. And um, there were, I think, things that to me felt like draconian backwards. Uh, you know, the uh, we weren't spoiled kids, so you know, we got presents for Christmas, but I didn't get like the the cool shoes that I wanted every time. I didn't get the new baseball mitt that all my friends got. 
Um, so I, I always felt one step behind on the consumables or the material items. But in exchange for that, now I deeply appreciate that what my parents were indexing for is instead of you know uh, giving me exactly what I wanted and giving my sisters exactly what we wanted, they were giving us a platform to just kind of find our way through to the thing. And so even though I wouldn't consider my parents heavy creatives uh, by any stretch themselves, it turns out that at least with me, uh, I ended up being high on imagination and um, interest in creating a, an, an odd set of circumstances for myself to get myself into arenas that um, wouldn't have been typical or expected of somebody growing up in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I know just from um, reading a little bit about you as well, that you've been very uh, conscious of how you've chosen to live. Including, you know, things like not having a car and, um, you know, um, not having traditional furniture in your home. You know, I wonder just how much of that kind of connects back to that experience where your parents, you know, did um, kind of uh, impart on you having appreciation and value in things that um, maybe are are more important or. That you know you don't necessarily have to have the things that everybody has. You know how much of that has kind of come through as an adult, as a kid, learning um, the lessons around not having or not allowing yourself to have all the material uh, goods. I think was a great lesson. Um, really great on you know I learned you know save your money. That was a great lesson early on is here's your allowance, but here's how you save it. Here's how you balance the checkbook. I was balancing a checkbook at five years old and I was getting a quarter a week in an allowance or something. And so that savings culture that, um, you know, make sure your money goes toward the thing you know you really, really want. And that's probably means delayed gratification because the thing you think you want right now might change in a week or a month or a year. So save your money and make sure you really want it before you go all in. That, that was taught early on. And then later in life, let's say college or maybe just post-grad, I learned the second big lesson along the lines that I think informs a lot of my lifestyle decisions subsequently, which is critical thinking. Everybody else has a couch in their house. I hate couches. I hate them. Uh, that came, that's a very intentional decision. doesn't mean I won't have a couch uh, one day in the house, but as of this moment, uh, the result of a critical thinking exercise around how do I want to live? And how do I want my guests to interact when we have guests at the at our apartment um, yielded a couch is the is not the answer. It's the exact opposite of the answer. So we don't have traditional furniture in the house. And uh, I haven't owned a car in three or four years. Purposely placed myself at the center of downtown and right at Broad and High, like the geographic center of the city of Columbus. So I can get to every bus line, I can bike pretty much anywhere, I can get anywhere fast. And then not need a car to execute my groceries, my professional life, my um, you know entertainment. It all happens within a pretty small radius, and and that's all intentional and uh, critical thinking is what got me there. And I try to apply it in little ways, and then like huge ways as well, which mm-hmm. is like how do I spend my time every day as well? Yeah. Okay. I want to come back to that because I have a lot of questions around kind of. Um, just the way you're thinking about things and the intentionality and kind of how you choose to apply that and where. But I do want to kind of take 
um, the rest of the way through this kind of childhood part. So tell me, you know, as you get into high school and you're a young adult, you mentioned sports, the drums, like, you know, reading, you know, tell me about what starts to kind of show up for you as you start to think about eventually you go to engineering school, you know, where are you in that kind of in-between part period? In high school, I was, this is where I think a lot of the tensions or these dualities start showing up in life. So one of them is I loved math and science, but I was weaker in math and science versus reading and writing. So all my test scores would yield, would have told you that I should be something that heavily indexes on reading and writing, but all my interests, uh, the subjects I loved the most and I cared the most about, it was all math and science. And, and so that was a weird tension for me. What you're best at is usually what you like doing. Um, and this was a little bit imbalanced for me. I was a successful student in general, but I loved calculus. Didn't really like English, but way outperformed my peers in English. And I was middle of the pack in calculus. Um, sports were another great example. I, I pushed really hard um, to not just make our baseball team, not just become a starter, but I became a left-handed catcher. If you know anything about baseball, you know how rare a left-handed catcher is. They have to get a custom catcher's mitt made because they don't make left-handed catcher's mitts because there are so few of them. And it was now obviously a challenge to myself, which is, can you succeed at the highest level? Can you make your varsity baseball team for a really good program in Kentucky, but do it doing something that is just objectively weird and, and left of center and, you know, 30 degrees orthogonal to how anybody else would do this because every other lefty is getting a job on first base as a pitcher or an outfielder. It's just what's happening. And, uh, and then, and I also played football as well. And again, couldn't just settle for what my body type would have probably suggested, which is uh, wide receiver, cornerback safety. I said, no, I want to be a, I want to be a linebacker. I, I'm 150 pounds in high school. I barely deserved to be on the field at all at that size, but I needed to become a varsity starter as an outside linebacker and compete with people that have 50 pounds on me uh, day in and day out to prove that I couldn't just do it, but I can do it with another constraint or another condition or another odd component to the, to the story. And those, those tensions are uh, now, I think, really instructive to still how I think about building businesses, building products, and then doing things in my personal life, which is how can I take some disparate couple of interests or this thing happening over here and this market happening over here and smash them together and just see what comes out because I've seen it work in these weird ways dating back to high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. A, I think it really is a, a superpower to be able to kind of see how things can come together that don't appear to really make sense for most people. I mean, that is really a, a sweet spot that, you know, as a visionary, you know, as a innovator, as a creative, you know, being able to connect those dots and then not just connect the dots, but then, you know, execute, you know, so, you know, it, you know, there's a lot of people and there's been a lot of conversation about this that, you know, will say, well, at 150 pounds, you just don't play linebacker, right? Like, and, and you're certainly never going to have any success at it. Um, and, and to not uh, let that kind of common language 
stop you and then to be successful at it you know is a very different story and i'm wondering you know if you could just kind of double click on that a little bit like where does that come from where does the i'm going to do it anyway i don't care what the statistics the history the public says i'm doing this anyway you know where where does that come from i have no idea it's a really it's a really good point that it was never just about being, let's say, weird for weird's sake. Uh, you probably know people like this. I, I know I do, which is, you know, they love being different, but different doesn't necessarily mean and then excel at that difference. It's really about different for different sake, in, in, at least in some ways. Um, and I always viewed those left of center approaches as an opportunity, I think, to put a chip on my shoulder if it didn't already exist, because. I'm maybe naturally very competitive or was just interested in, you know, disparate outcomes. Maybe I understood like asymmetry as a kid kind of naturally, which is, I wonder if I just do this differently, if it ends up working better than everyone expects. If, uh, if I'm too small to be a linebacker traditionally, but I'm quicker than the average offensive lineman, does that actually open up more value for my team as a result? I don't know. Let's try Right, mm-hmm. and so maybe those those kind of forced chips on shoulders have um, kept my intention or my engagement because it wasn't just about doing it in general the way my teammates were doing it, but I wanted to do it uh, and get there and get there in a in a different way, and that was always made it that much more interesting to me to see it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and maybe jumping ahead a little bit, and we'll circle back around um, as you move into college, but I am curious, you know, this, this forced chip on the shoulder, you know, I think there's a lot of um, people that would say that there was something motivating them uh, beyond just a, a goal to be successful, um, whether that be, you know, in sports or in business or in life in any way. Sometimes there are doubters, there are haters, there are people that, you know, put a chip on your shoulder. And I'm wondering how much of your success today do you really think comes from having a chip on your shoulder? Or did you let go of that earlier? And is something else driving you? Is it a combination of, and there's, you know, no judgment here. I'm just, you know, curious, like what is, where does that play a role in your life now? Yeah, I, it's a combination for sure. Because many of the many of the bogeys that we've created at Beam, for example, and this is especially with my co-founders of the course of the eight plus years now, um, are pretty imaginary. Um, here's what our big, the big incumbent insurance companies we're competing against are definitely thinking about or working on in the background. And it was like totally made up. It's, it was a, a way to motivate ourselves that our competitors were right on our heels in the early days. Um, we have invented a lot of you know, common enemies that, again, I think just focus and align our attention and our intentions uh, as, a, as a business. Uh, that have always been really helpful. They've worked for me. I've seen them work for a lot of other people too. And then sometimes there probably are real haters and uh, you know meaningful adversity that comes in externally that that has been, of course, easy to 
rally around and motivate me to overcome or motivate our teams to overcome. But it's definitely been not just that. You know, I wouldn't say that I that you know uh, we've been successful because there's adversity or a common enemy or some sort of you know lift to our Uber or Coke to our Pepsi that we've just had to defeat and it's driven us to get to this point and beyond. Uh, so the other side of of motivation for me has increasingly over time been about. Uh, using the limited precious time that I and we all have on planet Earth to just maximize impact. And I've found that that is just a phenomenal motivator because you can strip away all the other stuff that happens along the way. It's really fun to meet people. I love building teams. I'm doing some hiring right now. And it is so much fun to meet smart people and imagine how they might fit into the business. Um, but that even, even the people interactions um, goes away over time because you become desensitized to all these you know, awesome people around you all the time. It's an embarrassment of riches. And then, and then there's uh, you know, money, earthly stuff. And you're like, man, this is cool too. But then even that falls away uh, after a while. What you're left with, what I'm left with is a deep sense of motivation to fulfill the mission of our business around healthcare equity, around transforming an entire industry. And I know the next thing, whether it's a continuation of an expansion of Beam's mission or a new company, will be directly focused on some sort of maximization of impact, solving a problem for planet Earth. There's no better way to use your time on the planet, in my view. Yeah, well, you're you're preaching to the choir. You know, I get really uh, encouraged and um, energized to hear you say that because I totally subscribe to the impact being the fueling factor, right? And, you know, the chips and the money and the motivators and whatever else is out there. Again, no judgment. I've had it. I've been through all of that. You know, it's it's fueled me. It got me here. But um, today, the impact is really what fuels me too. I heard uh, Elon Musk recently talk about this subject where he 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 said something like um, profit should be a direct correlation to value. What are you providing to people? What what is the value you are creating? If you are creating uh, value, and to me that means impact. You're you're making uh, people's lives better. You're making communities better. You're making the world a better place. Then the money will follow. It doesn't have to, but it can. And so I love I love to hear that that's you know really what's driving you you know more than anything, and and kind of coming back to uh, you know as you start to go into the engineering world, right? I'm I'm really uh, fascinated because I know enough about you today, but I'm fascinated at that point. You're going into college into engineering. You're really this multifaceted person. You know the the kind of like. High level athletics, right? There's this kind of imagination, creativity, and you know the other pieces that you know came from where you lived and your family. Um, but you go into engineering, which also you know historic wasn't you know kind of reserved for people that were up to making you know the kind of impact that that you aspire to. And maybe that's unfair, but I always kind of thought it is a little bit more as a 
you know, blocking and tackling kind of, you know, in it, you know, analytical. Obviously, today, the engineering world with technology has blown wide open. But at that time, you know, tell me a little bit about what you were thinking then. I think it's exactly that that point that drove my co-founders and I together okay. uh, at, at Beam, which was, you're exactly right. And I would say even today, technology is still reserved for mostly the computer science and computer engineering departments of engineering schools. And then mm-hmm. that group inside of even those schools. So it's a limited number of schools, limited number of people. Your meat and potatoes engineering program is a mechanical engineering program at at an Ohio State or an Illinois or a Michigan State or something, right? And so these are these big engineering programs that are mostly indexed on feeding individual contributor engineers into large manufacturing businesses, chemical plants, oil refineries, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the culture of um, the University of Louisville where uh, my co-founders and I all went uh, to school as well. And um, inside that program was in order to graduate, um, even with a bachelor's degree, you had to have three semesters of a co-op or an internship. It was baked into the program. And the whole point of this program was to give you real-world experience and as a feeder system into trying out maybe multiple different employers or staying with one through all three co-ops. But the idea is you would graduate and basically next Monday, you'd start working at probably wherever you co-opt. And it was a wonderful program, but my co-founders and I, uh, Dan Dykes and Alex Curry and I, we all came back from our first semester away at the various co-ops that, that we were working at and all concluded the exact same thing, which is, oh my God, is this it? And if that is it, we, we need to come up with a, a new plan here. We, we need to figure out how to avoid getting these big boy jobs uh, ASAP. Mm. And I think what we were seeing or experiencing was that the type of work that you did, which is very mechanical, repeatable work for companies that were mostly playing not to lose, right? Um, so one, uh, uh, Dan Dykes, he worked at an oil refinery for his co-ops. It's all about safety and compliance and make sure the thing doesn't blow up, right? Um, size the pipes correctly so that the whole thing, you know, the system stays in balance. And it's important work, obviously, but it just wasn't of interest to a personality like his, nor mine, nor uh, nor Alex Curry's. And so what we all really, what brought us together, we were already friends and we had a bunch of classes together and, and, and some shared uh, mutual friends and experiences. So we were already friends, but what really brought us together and made us want to start a business together was that our collective mindset, and certainly mine, I was the, the driver behind getting serious about building a business while we're supposed to be you know, taking 18, out, 18 hours a semester of engineering coursework, um, was, man, there is so much more out there we can do. And there is so much more that I desire to do with my time than what it appears a professional engineer actually does. Mm-hmm. And so that probably spoke back to the fact that I, at the time, I was interested in everything. And engineering was just my most acute interest, but the, that list was long. And I found, uh, I figured that the only way I was ever going to get a chance to explore the next 99 interests on my list was going to be owning my own company where I had that freedom and flexibility versus working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I, I um, These are like, you know, the, the, the big names, but... Um... Jeff Bezos, I heard, 
recently say that um, uh, actually it was a, a, a C-level coworker uh, who just retired and was at this conference I was at, um, who, who said that he's known Jeff since college and his mission was always to go to space and selling books online was just a way to do that, right? And so, yes. you know, there is this kind of like, well, I want to be my own creator of my own life. And so business is going to be the way that I do that. And um, I find it fascinating that you started off with friends from college and, you know, here you are today with this business. I mean, did, did, did you go straight into Beam from, from that program with, with your co-founders? Is, was that the path? Not quite, but it is with my same co-founders. So we've been together pretty much every day, starting with classes and then with our first business and then Beam since 2006. So we've okay. been together uh, a long time. But we didn't start Beam uh, immediately because we didn't have the idea for Beam or frankly, we didn't have any ideas at all. Um, so one of the things that we, we got wrong, if you listen to the traditional advice about starting a business, is that there was no particular scratch that we were itching by starting a company. And we had no product or service that was unique and differentiated or solved a very specific problem. Um, the only specific problem we had at the time is that, oh my God, I don't want to get a job as a professional engineer. That was the problem we were solving. So yeah. the whole business was a ploy, uh, a very elaborate ploy to avoid um, taking a salaried position as an entry-level engineer at wherever. That first business, which we started, I think, when we were juniors in school and then lasted until just after we graduated, which is when Beam, we then rotated into Beam, essentially. For about two or two and a half years, we were running a engineering services business, which I defined broadly as um, anybody who asked us to do work and had money, we said yes to. That mm -hmm. was essentially our business model. And so we were doing everything and running the whole thing out of my living room. Um, and uh, Alex Curry was living with me at the time. So two of, the, two of the three of us were living together, running the thing out of our living room for two years while convincing our parents that whatever we were doing was like not really that important. And, you know, it was a very minimal thing we were doing on the side for fun, but it was really like at least 50 or 60 hours a week. And then we were scurrying around trying to make it look like we were still getting our coursework done. So nobody noticed. And that business was fascinating. We learned so much. It all looks so smart and intentional now uh, when we subsequently ended up starting an insurance business but what that work was at the time was a bunch of disparate clients, mostly in Louisville, Kentucky. And my job in the business was to go out, meet a bunch of people, build a network in the business community, and convince people that three random engineers at the uh, uh, undergrads at the engineering school could do whatever it is that they wanted. Custom electronics, CAD modeling, technical writing, uh, patent and intellectual property drafting. We did... Uh, work with uh, silicone manufacturing parts. We did R&D stuff. We did what we built websites. We did early IoT applications. We were interested in everything. And so we just gobbled the work up and built a little reputation for ourselves in the city that there were kind of three whiz kids. And some of their friends in engineering school were like building this like little business out of just odds and ends work sometimes for you know, established, important companies in town, and other times just for a one-off 
inventor, somebody that had an idea that they were trying to turn into um, some, you know, kind of go zero to one on an idea. And it was fascinating work. And we did it with a ton of joy and effort and gusto for two and a half years. Yeah, it's great. You know, I think a lot of times people who are maybe new or don't have kind of the um, direct contact to what it means to be an entrepreneur will probably look at the headlines that say Beam raises X amount of money and you know has X amount of people and you know doing you know X Y and Z right and what they don't know fully you know even if they you know kind of understand it unless they've experienced it they don't fully really know what it's like to have the first gig right to use your whole life experience to create and to actually go through all the scary as hell times before that headline comes and i've just kind of enjoying you know and and for those that are listening and can't see you know the the smile as you talk about those fun kind of even if they weren't necessarily at the time you say joy but i mean there might have been moments where you're like i don't know what the hell we're doing here might, might right? have been yeah, yeah might have been yeah yeah <laughs> right <laughs> and and so you know that to me is like that's the journey that's the good stuff and like if you're in that stage where you don't know how you're going to get i mean even the fact that you kind of nonchalantly say we didn't have any ideas you know, but you but you figured out a business. You did. You were figuring out a business. It was working, especially for college kids, right? It might not be a VC backed unicorn, but like for some people, if that business was their full time gig for the rest of their mm-hmm. lives, they would have been happy and successful. Yeah, and it would have worked. And yeah, it would have worked. worked. Yeah. But but if we would have kept at it, it would have worked absolutely at, at scale. Yeah, and you decided that there was something else there too. So. Tell me a little bit then, like, how does Beam really form? And, you know, share with the audience the journey you've been on um, with Beam. I think it's great to point out that, yes, now I think of it as the fun times because we had the maximum amount of freedom and we could do whatever we wanted. And, and it feels so much different now because the business, you know, is on a track and it's much more prescriptive and it's so structured and, and all those things are good because it's, it's critical to scale and success in what we're doing now. But um, at the time, it wouldn't have felt like that at all. It felt desperate. We were clawing at the mm. next client and is this real? And what does my mom think? Because uh, th- uh, my grades are starting to collapse. And the whole point was that I was supposed to be in college, not trying to start my own business. And I've never met anyone, by the way, in my life that has ever started a business before age 40. And so what am I doing at 20? You know, it looked like, you know, kind of like playing with a dollhouse, right? It's like fun stuff for kids, but there's like a 0% chance it was going to turn into something real. So it wouldn't have felt, it, it would have felt very desperate uh, at the time. But that's part of the, like, it was a constant adrenaline rush for two years, which was the light, the light bulb of thinking we had an idea and trying something and failing. We, we tried on the side to get multiple concepts off the ground because we wanted our own product. We wanted something that we could uh, take and build and own ourselves. But we tried to get multiple things off the ground that were crash and burn, total crash and burn. 
And because we didn't know anything about uh, business plans, financial modeling, markets, we were engineers. So most of our experience was like we could build the thing. We had very little uh, concept of, you know, sales, marketing, business development. That, that was all largely foreign. So I think really the breakthrough came for us in 2012 and multiple forces came together. That first business, one of our clients over about a year or a year and a half worth of time was a dental manufacturing company. It just happened to be located in Louisville, Kentucky. So we were kind of their outsourced R&D department. So they had us always tinkering with little things that you know had been kind of internally generated ideas, trying to see if we could turn any of those ideas into something meaningful for their business. And so we started working on a variety of dental ideas and applications. My sister, my older sister, got into dental school. And so she's a, a dental uh, undergrad at the time. So she's learning a bunch of stuff in her classes and, you know, of course, knows that we're working on this business and we're looking for ideas. So she's just kind of lobbing stuff over the wall at me, which is like, this thing kind of stinks to work with. Take a look at that. And so she's throwing all these you know, dental instruments and the root canal process is all screwed up. Like, what, what if you could reinvent how root canals work? It's, it was totally random. And then... Um, one of our co-founders, Alex Curry, his mom is a dental hygienist. So he had grown up in the summers, like basically living with her during the day in the office. And so he knew kind of everything about the, the culture, the environment, and many of the things that go on inside just the dental practice day to day. And so we started thinking seriously about the specifics in the dental industry overlaid with what was happening in plus or minus 2012 which was the Affordable Care Act had been passed recently and it was beginning to roll out. And the, the big topics for the Affordable Care Act, if you remember, were get more people uh, insurance coverage, create new markets called the insurance exchanges for people to be able to buy insurance that couldn't get it through an employer or you know, didn't have access to it through uh, Medicare or Medicaid. And then a uh, third was elect, you know, kind of like digitize you know, medical records, digitize the process, create more tech-oriented infrastructure for healthcare to run on. Things that are now helping produce multi-billion dollar businesses across the digital health spectrum. And there's so many exciting things happening in healthcare these days. Uh, but a lot of that started with the infrastructure that the Affordable Care Act kind of forced into existence. And we were really interested in what was going on in healthcare. That seemed like a worthy pursuit was healthcare and tech. There's something in there. And then there were all these dental forces in our lives as well. So we just smashed it all together. And again, that's like another piece of weird tension where I really like building tech and I've got these two friends that really love it as well. And we think healthcare is a big market that's worth it. And my sister's in dental school. Yeah. So like put that in a cauldron, mix it up and see what comes out. Yeah. And over time, it became obvious to us that as we started like looking under the hood of the industry, that dental insurance was a huge influencer into how dentists practiced, what they did, what they didn't do, because it was driven by what they would get reimbursed for. Like, like the rest of healthcare is the same way. Whatever gets reimbursed is what you do, and it's how you do it as well. And so we saw dental insurance as this archaic, commoditized, $75, $80 billion market that appeared to be receiving zero innovation attention. And that's essentially what birthed me. Got it. And 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 tell me a little bit about obviously, you know, your success has been well documented and 
your most recent announcement of the latest round, you know, was pretty impressive. You know, you've you've come a long way. And I remember an early meeting when you were kind of in the very uh, early stages of of at least you know the Columbus part of Beam. Talk a little bit about the move to Columbus, your your experience on this journey. You know the the ups, downs, scary moments, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that maybe people don't know, haven't seen, you know, that you've been through. I mean, you know, from my perspective, there's a tremendous amount of commitment and, and hustle and grit and, you know, kind of die at your desk, you know, till it happens. And, and, and it did happen. But, you know, you, you've been through it to get to this point. Talk a little bit about that. Beam started with an IoT solution that we imagined selling to the big incumbent insurance carriers. We didn't know anything about insurance at the time and figured it was impossible to build a, a new insurance business from the ground up. So we didn't even consider that as, a, as an option early on. So we built the first connected toothbrush called the Beam Brush. The idea was if we could get insight, telemetry into daily dental hygiene, are you brushing your teeth every day or not? That would be valuable to create more of a personalized relationship and better member experience for the members of insurance businesses. And it could be used in the context of underwriting. It's another, it's kind of like a safe driving discount. Um, the telemetry into your driving habits helps illuminate opportunities to deepen the pool of data w- with which you can decide who is low risk, who's medium risk, who's high risk. And so that was essentially the business. And it, it worked and it failed. And so it worked in the sense that we successfully built the product. We raised a small seed round. This is still in Kentucky at the time. And we sold a bunch of these connected brushes. But it failed in that our customer sitting on the other side of that transaction was where the data being produced by these brushes needed to go. It needed to go to these insurance businesses. So they needed to be on the other side of the marketplace that we were trying to build as willing participants in consuming that data and then using it because that would make the market. And and that's where we we failed. We walked in the front door of all these uh, legacy insurance businesses and gave them the the full pitch and just heard crickets on the other end. So we were we were by 2014 totally out of money, again, totally desperate. The chip is fully on the shoulder at this point because our one idea that we finally generated that we thought was a thing looks like it's going to crash and burn. And now I've got investor money on the hook as well. And by that point, we had a, you know, a reputation in Kentucky for being uh, a, a good investment. Uh, we, were, we were reputable. We were real. And so we thought this was going to hurt not just our ability to have the next idea, but we thought it was going to hurt the previous business of services as well, because we would essentially be outed as frauds uh, for having built something that totally didn't work at all. And it was at the Kentucky Derby of 2014 when uh, Drive Capital, it, it in, in and of itself a startup at the time in Columbus, um, had a couple of their partners um, at the Kentucky Derby. And I got a, a sneaky backdoor invitation to this party so I could meet them because we were you know, looking around for uh, the capital that could allow us to expand our ambition as a business. By that point, we knew that we weren't going to be able to convince 
the legacy dental insurance companies to join us in this innovation journey, we were going to have to build our own insurance business so we could then fully express the idea, which was a digital first dental insurance business. And Drive Capital was at the time, which they should get a ton of credit for, probably the only venture capitalist I know because I think I pitched every single one of them. Uh, the only VC firm that was willing to sit still for a pitch about a, a new full stack insurance carrier uh, mm. anywhere in the country. And so when we met Drive, we started coming up to Columbus. We ultimately worked out our Series A, which was an investment they made for us to um, expand from just being the hardware, the IoT, and the data solution into a full stack insurance carrier. That catalyzed us to actually move the company, which was still just really us and our first employees, so there were four of us total, moved us to Columbus in summer of 2014 and became the basis of um, the Beam Dental that, that we know and, and operate today. Um, but even in those days, we, were, uh, we then had capital, but we still didn't have a business. We didn't have a business model because we needed to build out all this insurance infrastructure before we could really have the business model that would get us to today's Beam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously you need a partner like Drive who really gets your vision for that and, and willing to take the risk to get behind it. And you know, I love the fact that um, not only were they able to do that, but then you were willing to say, "Okay, and I'm coming to Columbus. I'm going to build this thing there." You know, from as a longtime resident of Columbus and somebody who's deeply engaged and passionate about the growth of the city, I have said for many years that the future of our city really depends on the next generation of entrepreneurs. Um, yes, we'll always have state capital and big university, but you know there needs to be a next generation of entrepreneurs. And it's really companies and success stories like Beam that fuel not just the economics and the job growth, but you know the culture here too, and thanks to Drive and and groups like Beam, you know we are starting to have an ecosystem, a culture of of venture, of technology, of of you know entrepreneurship, and and that leads to kind of my belief of you know kind of all the cool fun stuff that we want too, right? Um, you know the arts, uh, and and I know that you have a deep passion for art, and I'm also kind of. Uh, enjoying that, you know, you've got this this jockey side, right? You know, and and you know this this engineering side, and then this really, you know, very uh, artistic side, and and not in the you know kind of fine, you know, medium, you know, traditional sense, which maybe you do too. I don't know, but the love of art is something that you know we have in common and the importance of that in the city. And I know you've been super active with Create Columbus and other places. So talk to me a little bit about kind of your view on um, Columbus impact, you know, creativity, the arts, and and you know, just share a little bit, you know, generally about kind of where you are engaged and how you see that unfolding go forward. I love being involved and Columbus is a great place to get involved. Um, it's very easy to actually get your hands around what's going on in a city the size of Columbus. And one is welcoming to all different people coming at involvement from so many different angles. It's not just a city where 
you have to be in city council if you want to get anything done, or you have to be a billionaire to get anything done. You can you can get it done at a lot of different levels, which I which I really appreciate, and and I've always found to be a superpower of Columbus. I'm involved uh, for years. I was involved in the Creek Columbus Commission. I got uh, introduced there really early on, like one of the very first people I met in Columbus when I moved here was Jordan Davis, um, still one of my best friends today. And uh, it got introduced early to many of the things she was doing uh, in and for the city. Creek Columbus was one of them. And so the Creek Columbus Commission was like a four or five year uh, commitment and, and have been pulling that thread for a long time, just a phenomenal group and uh, effort for the city. Uh, now uh, focusing on the GCAC because of that passion for the arts and in, involved in the Columbus Museum uh, as well, but probably my, my board service focus right now is, is the GCAC. And, uh, and then we're involved with the ballet as well. My fiance is a former professional ballet dancer. And so we have a lot of passion for all things ballet, where Columbus also has kind of a unique advantage in terms of the, the quality of the uh, leadership and the organization of, of Ballet Met. The mission or the vision is bigger than just being involved in the thing. I think, you, and you're the exact same way, I think, about thinking about this, which is you're, you're involved in stuff, you're doing things in different pockets, but you're really trying to go at 10,000 feet to look over what's Columbus need to look like in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years from now? And how do we start laying the bricks in that direction now? Uh, I totally agree entrepreneurs are a driving force of not just the economy, but then what subsequently you can do when there's um, so much of the dynamicism that gets introduced into a place because of the efforts of entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that's really exciting. I view Columbus as still a relatively blank canvas. It's like weird because it's a 2 million person metro area and it's kind of like just getting started. There's still plenty of, you know, parking lots that need to be turned into big, bold pieces of architecture. There are still plenty of places where uh, public art needs to be installed in the city. There are plenty of, of uh, districts that need to be built out. There are plenty of neighborhoods that deserve more investment. There's plenty of digital infrastructure that still needs to be introduced into the city. And, you know, I view this at, at the education level, at the uh, real estate development level. I view this uh, certainly at the art level and in uh, the social fabric. And it's a, I think it's a really exciting time in Columbus because it, it feels like you and I and three other people could get together tomorrow, have an idea, fund an idea, and then execute an idea in any of those domains I mentioned and more and actually get it done. Uh, not because we're necessarily the most special people put on earth, but because Columbus is in the sweet spot of having the ability to uh, make things happen without there being so much bureaucracy and infrastructure and regulatory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To be able to do it. Yeah. And I think it's more true today um, than I've experienced um, in the past. Maybe there was another time where this was also still true. But, you know, where I get excited is, you know, having people like you who do have the vision and also have the understanding that you can make things happen. And yes, there's a uh, openness here to do that that is relatively easy compared to other cities. I, I believe in a sense of collaboration that allows things to happen, you know, much easier. But you know, I kind of come back to these threads along your life where 
you maybe even take it for granted a little bit. I think, you know, most people that have this skill, you know, and I, I, I would put myself in that category, it comes so naturally that we don't necessarily um, realize, you know, kind of how we make things happen. It's just kind of what we do. And, you know, you've done that over and over again, whether it be, you know, left-handed catcher, linebacker, you know, the pivots, you know, in the first business, right? Beam, like you have a gift, you make things happen and you are expanding that outside of your work and into the community as you start to do this work and great things will happen there too. And so that's exciting, you know, for me to watch and to have others to do these kinds of fun and impactful initiatives with. It is really fun to watch uh, peers, friends, uh, people you know, people you don't know, but that have some sort of overlap with you, like other folks in Columbus uh, is a great example. It's fun to be able to just see and watch people who do things get things done at, at any level. And uh, it's, it's a, again, I think a really fun time in the city. Uh, my, my area of passion is around the arts. So I'm going to continue to try to make things happen in that arena specifically, but am and simultaneously super appreciative of folks that are also doers and imaginers and visionaries that are making things happen in domains that I'm personally less interested in, but know that we also need to be able to create the city of the future for Columbus. Yeah. yeah and, and one last question for you. You know, I'm observing your willingness and kind of your courage um, and, and I don't know if that's the right word for you, but that's the way it looks to me, to continue to lean into the what's possible and the ability to create in ways that maybe are unique um, and not kind of the traditional way things have been done, which I have found living in Columbus most of my life. I think Columbus is a very different city today than it was you know, decades ago. That even still, there is a bit of a sense of kind of a public societal fabric expectation of how things are done. And those things that are really outside the box can oftentimes um, come with a lot of resistance. And so, you know, whether it be, you know, get rid of the car and no couch or anything else that you're doing, you know, talk to me just a little bit about how you have gotten comfortable or what your experience has been in doing things differently despite maybe that societal fabric that does still exist? It is scary in a sense because everybody wants to be included. You know, you want to be on the, uh, the inside of the joke, not the butt of the joke. And in in places that are more conservative and traditional, there's an expectation, right? Business people wear suits, right? And business people wear suits and they talk a certain way and they attend these events and they all hang out and do this. And they, they, they're executing a playbook that already exists. Mm-hmm. The creativity, the personality traits that I think naturally, uh, that, that I've had naturally, have always wanted I've always wanted to accomplish what that traditional person accomplishes, but differently. So I've always looked for how can I be just 10 degrees of the playbook, but I can still get to the end point. Um, again, putting a chip on the shoulder to just look for my what's my angle to this thing. 
And again, it's not difference for difference sake. I want to get there. I want to get there differently and hopefully be even more successful or inspire other people or, or show folks that there is a different way to do it. And now I just do it, you know, so it's, I think it's fun also to be a little bit provocative, especially in a, um, a city or in an environment that is a bit more traditional. I've been hawking the taco bus idea for years now. Do you, have you heard it? Have I told you this one before? No, you haven't. <laughs> so Coda is missing the opportunity of a lifetime. The Central Ohio Transit Authority should rename itself the Transit Authority of Central Ohio Taco. Uh-huh. And we should wrap all of our buses in Columbus to look like burritos, chalupas, <laughs> uh, hard shell, soft shell tacos, whatever your thing is. Uh-huh. And we should celebrate Taco Tuesdays every Tuesday. Yeah. And it would be the weirdest, quirkiest thing that the city of Columbus has probably ever done. Yeah. And it's a half serious proposal, which I am trying to get traction on, by the way. But it's really meant to force people who would otherwise be taking someone like me, a local business leader, very seriously on the things like, Fro, tell me three ideas to make Columbus better. And they're expecting to hear things like, you know, high speed access to the thing, or like, let's right. make our schools better, or let's repave the roads, or whatever those initiatives you would expect to come out of my mouth as a business leader. But the first thing I'm going to flop on the table is the top bus because it's a way to brand the city and to its art, right? It would, that would be some public art rolling with our buses. And it would also just be a totally divorced from the norm idea that Columbus and many other places need to become more comfortable consuming and understanding as worthy of consideration, not the proposal itself, but the idea that you can take something that's uh, naturally joyous, quirky, and a little bit left of center and go, oh, that actually is kind of an interesting idea. Why haven't we thought of that before? Why aren't we considering things like this? And maybe it never turns into the literal taco bus, but maybe this other public art initiative ends up happening because there were a bunch of people that were forced to the table by the provocative idea of the taco bus. Yeah, and I think that's well, really fun to do. Well, that, that's that's great. I love the example. Um, uh, and I know you're you're maybe more than half serious. And and what why I love it, I love I, why I love that you brought this up is because it is the kind of stuff that's like you know people can say, well, let's think outside the box, you know, let let's be creative and and find our way to be different. But I don't, they don't really mean it. They mean like just on the edge of the box at best, right? right. And and yep. so they don't really get like something that quirky, something that weird, actually, actually, and this is the point I've been trying to make locally as it pertains to architecture, design, public art, placemaking, that I believe these kinds of Instagram moments, maybe now NFTs, right? Like this is actually economic development. And yep. if you, imagine the media, imagine the, the, the media that would come from something like that. I mean, even if they just did it for a day or took three buses, right? Or had it on Tuesday, whatever it might be, it would be a international story, right? It would be. And, and what would that do for, well, Columbus is creative. Columbus is artistic. Columbus is, what else? Entrepreneurial. This is a place where millennials are thriving, you know, where weird ideas can become integrated into public-private partnerships. I mean, it's actually exactly the kind of thing that we need to be doing. Now, it's more than 10% outside the box. 
which which I do want to kind of just comment on because I think you know what you've done is exactly the path that I recommend, which is take a baby step, don't don't jump without a parachute. You know, iterate. You don't have to go all the way to the end right at the beginning, right? But now that you have, now that you've landed where you've landed, you do have the confidence and the the kind of you know bandwidth, resources, reputation to take some big ass jumps in that world, and 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 it's because you did the ten percent all the way there to now you can you know throw it throw anything out that you want. It's a muscle like any others, right? I'm, I'm yeah. a very secure person today because I've always been willing to be a little bit weird and just live in it, right? If I was a bad left-handed catcher, I might have lost the will to continue to be a catcher or even play baseball at all. So I fought and competed to become better than all the right-handed catchers or at least as good as every single one of them I ever came up against. So that way I could hang. And if somebody ever tried to make fun of the fact that I was a left-handed catcher, I was like, look, beat me then yeah. prove you're prove your better. And so today, I want to compete in the marketplace of ideas. And if you can come up with, as I'm sure you can, an idea 10x better than the taco bus, bring it on. Like, let's, right. and let's, come, let's come up with the best ideas possible so that Columbus succeeds as a city. And if this idea is a great one, then it should be pursued with the same vigor as any other great idea that comes on the table. And that's what makes it so fun is that once you have the security to know that you belong at the table in the first place, um, you can now really start opening up not what you think they want to hear, but what you actually think. Yeah, it's great. Fro, thanks for taking the time. It's been a pleasure to chat with you and to hear your story and to get inside to your thinking. And um, any kind of final thoughts you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Uh, just that I think our opening chat was about entourage. Our closing chat was about taco buses. And so I'm not even sure if anybody's going to listen to anything in between, but we'll see. <laughs> it was yeah. fun nonetheless. Yeah, good. Well, fun for me too. And I hope uh, people do listen. There's a lot of really great wisdom in there. And uh, congrats on all your success and keep it going. Thanks, man. You too. Super fun. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman, on Twitter at bkaufman125, and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for the Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.